I'm speaking to the Irving, Texas Democratic Women's Club about progressives in labor history. I want to say, first of all, that you can't really understand history if you just look at it by itself. You have to have a little economics, a little politics, and things like that to really understand history. But I'm going to go over some of the historical steps uh, that progressives made in all of labor history. Now, labor history began when people created something that was worth stealing because then another group stole it. And it's been like that ever since. We have the people who make stuff, whom we call the laborers, and the people who took it, who we call the bosses. So labor progressives may well begin with the story of Moses because Moses freed the slaves and was intent on organizing everybody. The bosses were never happy with organizing efforts, as Spartacus found out when he tried to organize all the slaves in the Roman Empire. That's somebody that wanted to organize everybody. Uh, of course, they killed him and hanged him upside down and crucified him, but Spartacus, nevertheless, was one of the heroic people who tried to organize everybody and deserves to be in this discussion. The most successful of all slave rebellions was a guy whose name I can't pronounce called something like Toussaint L'Overture. And he had a successful slave rebellion on the island of Dominica, uh, which is now called the country of Haiti, which has been punished every year since the early 19th century when the successful slave rebellion occurred. The International Association of Working Men occurred in the 1860s, mostly in Europe and in England, and the name international endured even though the International Association of Working Men didn't last very long. It was set up by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, who very definitely wanted to organize everybody and tried to put this whole idea of organizing against the bosses on some kind of scientific foundation. As I said, their organization didn't last long, but much later, someone started something called the Second International, which is still going on. There was also a Third International, which more or less ended, I think, in 1943. There's Some people would say that there is a Fourth International that's going on now, and other people would say that there's a Fifth International, and there goals always was to organize everybody, progressives in the labor movement. William H. Silvis was a great American. After the Civil War, industrialists began to run the country as opposed to agriculturalists, and so-called free labor or non-slave labor uh, was the kind of labor that we had. Unions blossomed, and the first idea of a national labor union was formed by William H. Silvis. He's quoted all the time, or at least the first part of his quote, I love this union cause, and he did love it. He loved it so strongly and so severely that he worked himself to death. He started 
the National Labor Union in, uh, I believe in 1868. He died in 1869 and uh, the Federation soon fell after him because he, he was the center of the whole thing. The Knights of Labor were started about that same period and they had some victories. The Knights of Labor had some following all over the world. They are the ones, more than anybody else, who organized the fight for the eight-hour day in 1886, which largely took place or was centered in Chicago. And you probably know that the leaders of the eight-hour day movement were taken out and hanged. In 1885, the Knights of Labor had a great victory that began right here in Texas. It began in Sherman, Texas, when they declared a strike against the Great Southwest Railroad. This was owned by Jay Gould. Jay Gould's quote is famous for his quote of saying, I can hire half the working class to kill the other half. In 1885, he was defeated by the Knights of Labor, but in 1886, he broke the contract, hired half the working class, killed the other half, and uh, so the Knights of Labor took, took a terrible uh, defeat after that. Not long after the Knights of Labor began to go down, Eugene Victor Debs, an officer of the Firemen's Union, started trying to organize the rest of the railroad unions, because railroad unions were very powerful. He set up the American Railway Union and tried to get members of all of the brotherhoods of the railways. Uh, they immediately, or almost immediately, fell into a strike against George Pullman and the Pullman Company. The government joined in on the side of the Pullmans and uh, destroyed the National Ra American Railway Union and put Victor Gene Debs in jail. Now, Gene Debs is probably the most quoted of all American labor leaders. And uh, if you look, look at, up his quotes, uh, it's just pages and pages and pages of it because he was a great orator and very, very quotable. Gene Debs was a charter member of the Industrial Workers of the World, which began at the beginning of the 20th century. They sometimes called themselves the OBU for one big union. They were also called the Wobblies. Nobody knows why they were called the Wobblies. But the Industrial Workers of the World had the idea that they were going to get everybody into some kind of a union. Everybody who worked it would be in one of their 12 departments of unions. And then they were going to call a general strike and take over the government. They were, they're usually called a union. They're part of union history, but actually they were a revolutionary organization. And as you can see from this picture, their idea was that all workers united would be so strong that they could take over anything. And they did have some very fabulous, very outstanding and very romantic victories, especially in textile up in the Northeast and in uh, shipping and dock workers on the West Coast. The, uh, the industrial workers of the world were fabulous. They organized black people, brown people, women, Everybody that, that moved, if, it, if they could possibly organize them, they did. The Congress of Industrial Organizations began as a committee of the AFL of in 1935. You will notice that I did not talk about the AFL because it did not try to organize everybody. 
They just tried to organize the most elite part of the working class. They tried to organize people who had a craft that was very hard to copy. But this came from the old idea, it goes back to the Middle Ages, of guilds. These guilds would have their trade and they wouldn't let anybody else in their trade. So they, they managed to make a pretty good living by being exclusive to certain skilled trades. And that's what the AFL tried to do. One exception was the mine workers. And in 1935, the head of the mine workers was able to get the AFL to start a committee for industrial organizing. And it immediately began to have great successes. Here in Texas, their most romantic moment came, I think, in San Antonio when they organized the pecan shellers. These were people who worked at home and shelled pecans, and they were nearly all Latinos. And uh, they had this great success under the dynamic leadership of a 17-year-old Chicana named Emma Tenayuca. So the CIO tried to organize everybody, and they had great success until 1947. And in 1947, the government came down hard on them. They passed a law called the Taft-Hartley Law, and I'll give them, I want to give them credit for the Democrats. The Democrats did not pass this law. The Republicans did. Uh, they tried, the, the, the Democratic president at that time was Harry Truman, and he vetoed the bill. But the Republicans were so strong in Congress that they could override his veto. And after 1947, the uh, CIO had to kick out all of their most progressive leaders, all the communists, all the socialists, all of their most progressive leaders, and become pretty much business unionists, more or less like the AFL. And then in 1955, they actually joined the AFL and became part of, uh, of a labor federation that was not really very progressive and did not really try to organize everybody. As a result of that, they lost two-thirds of their members, they lost a lot of their political clout, uh, and they lost a lot of their progressive nature. They gave up on organizing black people, they gave up on organizing the South, they gave up on women, they gave up on youth, and they uh, just got older and grayer and smaller. This went on until 1995 when a new uh, leadership in the AFL-CIO, and a lot of them were, were from unions that were from the old CIO. In 1995, new leadership took over and they were committed to organizing everybody. They're still working at it, it's not easy, it's, it's been a difficult transition, but it's, it's working to some extent. And that's why I'm proud to be today a part of the AFL-CIO. In fact, I'm the communications director for the Dallas AFL-CIO, and I really, really like doing it. Now, as for the future, I'll go back to Debs. As I said, he was terribly quotable, and I found a lot of quotes from Debs, but I did not find the quote that I was looking for, because this is a wonderful quote about the future of labor 10,000 times has the labor movement stumbled and bruised itself. We have been enjoined by the courts, assaulted by thugs, charged by the militia, traduced by the press, 
frowned upon in public opinion, and deceived by politicians. But notwithstanding all this and all these, labor is today the most powerful and vital power this planet has ever known. And its historic mission is as certain of ultimate realization as is the setting of the sun. Eugene Victor Debs. This is Gene Lance on the Workers' Beat Extra presenting progressives in labor history to the Irving Women's Democratic Club.